If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Thanks, Joe. Do keep that passage open, and there's an outline on the inside of your notice sheet if that would help you follow along. I wonder if you've ever done this. Uh, you're leaving Lancaster, going south on the A6 in, in a car, or else this illustration won't work, and you're going about 35 miles an hour or so. And you get to that bit just past the university where the speed limit changes from 40 to 50. So you calmly accelerate in a manner appropriate to the road and conditions, and you change gear from fourth to fifth, except your hand slips and you go into third instead. Have you ever done that? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Nat. Uh, suddenly the car lurches and winds and the speed drops. You're thrown forward and you just feel sick to your stomach. Ever felt something like that? Everything's going along smoothly and beautifully, and then suddenly everything goes wrong. Well, if you've been here for our Matthew 18 series so far, I wonder if you got a similar sense as we read that passage this morning. So far in Matthew 18, we've been given some quite astonishingly beautiful countercultural images of what life ought to be like in Jesus' church, the community gathered around him and his words. We've heard Jesus tell the disciples that in order to be counted great in the kingdom of heaven, they must change and become like little children. Small, weak, nobodies, not pursuing their own status or reputation, but humbly counting themselves nothing and relying on Jesus for everything. We've seen that these little ones must not look down on each other, but instead have a passionate and compassionate desire to avoid anything which might cause themselves or others to stumble in their walk with Jesus. We've seen that this church has angels in heaven, mighty spiritual powers who have access to God, who represent the church in heaven and who serve it and protect it. And we've had the wonderful pastoral image of a father who pursues the little ones who wander, like a shepherd who goes to find a wandering sheep and rejoices when they're restored to the flock and a call for all of us to engage in the same shepherding care of one another. But now we get this. Now comes the apparent gear shift. It might feel like in verse 15, everything changes. The language of little ones has gone, now we're just talking about brothers. And we get what seems to be a fairly dry bit of church discipline policy. It can feel like this. Here's how you root out and stamp out sin in the church. First, 15, uh, engage uh, in a witch hunt. Everyone should be watching each other and looking out for sin and finding fault with one another. Then, verse 16, everyone pile on until the person repents. And if he doesn't repent, verse 17, pass it over to the church authorities who will officially excommunicate that person. And if they do that, verse 18, they will wield all the authority and power of heaven. God will rubber stamp all their decisions. 
Do you feel the gear shift? Do you feel the lurch in your stomach? We've all seen, I imagine, TV shows and movies where religious communities are represented like this, as cold, stern, unforgiving, authoritarian, not willing to tolerate any deviation from the status quo. And tragically, there have been, and there are, and there will be, religious communities like this, some of which have borne the name of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've even encountered this in real life, and I'm so sorry if you have. Because that quick skim reading of the passage I just did is actually an entirely false impression of what Jesus is actually saying here. And we can see that from Peter's reaction to it in verse 21, which we'll look at next week. Look at that, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? You see, when Peter hears verse 15 to 20, he is not shocked by how stern and authoritarian it is. You see, because we come from a permissive, live and let live, don't judge me kind of culture, caring about other people's sin and going to talk to them about it might be the thing that shocks us. But Peter hears Jesus and says, sorry, you want me to be how forgiving? Peter is shocked by the grace of this passage. And that's because that vision of a stern, authoritarian, unforgiving community is precisely the opposite of what Jesus is calling his people to be. There is, if we read this passage properly, no gear shift at all in between verse 14 and 15. We're still talking about the will of the compassionate Father that none of his little ones perish. We should still have in our minds the picture of the shepherd pursuing the wandering sheep. The reason we've shifted from little ones to brothers and sisters is because what we're talking about, what that looks like from the inside, as people don't look down on one another, but see each other on the same level as family, as kin. And we're going to see this morning that far from being a stern and judgmental witch hunt, what Jesus is calling us to here, as the outline on your sheet suggests, is a shockingly gracious, kind, patient pursuit of wandering sheep with the gracious goal of their salvation and the salvation of others by an authentic church who's acting in line with Jesus' mission to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth. So let's work our way through the passage together. Firstly, we see a patient pursuit. The first shocking word, I think, in this passage is in verse 15. Look at it with me. If your brother sins against you, go. I think that word go is the first word we should stop and think about. What is your natural reaction when someone sins against you? It's worth saying that Jesus presents this as a totally normal and expected occurrence in the church gathered around his name, we're going to sin against each other. That is sad, but not at all surprising. We are sinners, not that in the sense of belonging to some abstract theological category of sinners, but in the sense that we commit actual sins all the time. We say wrong things and we do wrong things. We hurt each other with words and looks and actions. It's not right, but it is normal. Notice that Jesus has moved away in this section from the language of stumbling and stumbling blocks. We've seen that in previous passages, haven't we? That Greek word that's something like scandalized, to to cause someone to stumble, to sin in such a way that means they put someone's salvation in doubt. In verse 7, if you cause someone to stumble in that way, you're better off being thrown into the sea with a millstone around your neck. But 
here Jesus doesn't seem to be talking about sin, which is quite in that category. He's just talking about the normal, boring, bog-standard sins that you and I commit against each other all the time. The harsh word, the thoughtless comment, the unkept promise, the selfish attitude, the unwise email. This just happens in Christian community. So here's the question. What is the first thing that you do when someone sins against you like that? What is the first verb? How would you complete verse 15? If your brother sins against you, what? Here are some suggestions from my own heart. Seethe. Grumble. Complain. Gossip. Lash out. Avoid. Resent. Sulk. Brood. Bear a grudge. Nurse that grievance. Passively, aggressively make a snarky comment. Is that just me? Our natural sinful response to sin is to sin. But Jesus is calling us to a different, shockingly gracious response. If your brother sins against you, go. Take the initiative. Pursue the wandering sheep. Don't leave it to someone else. Go yourself. Go to him. Go to her. Walk towards the person who has caused you pain and calmly and gently and privately point out their faults. Do you see that? Privately, just just the two of you. If there's sin between two people, don't immediately involve another 20 people. Don't go and say to someone else, you you never believe what she just said to me, or guess what he's gone and done now. If you want to breed a cold, unforgiving, judgmental community, that's the way to go about it. No, if the sin is just between the two of you, deal with it at that level. Go, go and say to your brother, and remember as you go that he is your brother, she is your sister, they are fellow little ones who belong to the same heavenly father. Go and say, do you know I found that really hurtful? Go and say, I don't think you are right to do that. Go and say, I'm a bit worried about you because of the way you spoke to me last week. Is everything okay? Is that a scary prospect to you? Can you imagine saying something like that to someone? Here's a question to ponder over coffee or in growth groups over the week. If we find ourselves not wanting to do that, why is that? Is it because we fear making a fuss? Is it because we fear hurting the relationship? Is it because we secretly quite like having a little grudge to nurse? There could be all sorts of things which stop us doing what Jesus is saying here. And in a moment, I'll come back to Jesus' motivation as to why we should want to do it. But but okay, let's assume you've plucked up the courage. Let's assume that you've done it. And you've gone to your brother and sister and they say to you, what are you talking about? Don't be ridiculous. I haven't done anything wrong. and I really don't appreciate being spoken to like that. Okay, what's next? What is the next verb? Here's some more. Back off. Run away. Explode with rage. Write a furious email to the pastor. Give them up as a bad job. Nope. Look at verse 16. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. What's the next verb Jesus says? Go again. You go again. And this time you take one or two people with you. Now, what's the purpose of that? Are these people who have seen the original sin and sort of can corroborate the facts? Is is that what's meant by witnesses? That does actually appear to be the meaning of this quote in the original context of Deuteronomy. It's sort of like a legal witness. 
but I do think Jesus is using this idea slightly differently here. These are not witnesses of the original sin necessarily, I don't think, but witnesses of this conversation. They are here in it together with you and your brother and your sister to help sort the matter out. Now, part of the wisdom here might, be, might well to be as act as a sort of a mediator or provide a bit of perspective. It could be that the two friends you brought along turn to you and say, Ashley, mate, I do think you're overreacting a bit. But assuming the brother really has sinned and that he isn't repentant when he should be, which is clearly what Jesus is envisaging here, the presence of one or two extra people is there to strengthen this appeal to your brother and sister. It's not just me who wants to see you repent. Fred and Carolyn are here too. They love you, and they've heard what we've both said, and we all agree you need to listen to us and take this seriously. It's not just me. All three of us are concerned about you. Okay, so you've done that. What if they don't listen again? Next verb. Slam the door on your way out? Punch them in the face? No. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, be very careful how you read this verse. This is not church with a big capital C. We have a tendency to think and read very institutionally about church. We read church, I think, and think them. The denomination, the institution, the leadership. How do you tell the church? Well, you fill in agreements form on a website. Or you email the elders and ask them to come along en masse and sort it. Now, it's probably a good idea for a church to have some structure and formal process in place for things like this, but that really isn't what Jesus has in mind. He's not actually talking about the church as institution. He's not even actually talking about church leaders or elders, even if practically it probably makes sense for them to be involved at this stage. He's talking about the gathering, the congregation, the local collection of disciples. That's what the word translated church means. This is only the second time it's used in the whole New Testament, and that's what the disciples would have heard. They wouldn't have thought institution. They would have thought gathering, the gathered group of Christians meeting in one place. And so when Jesus says, tell it to the church, we're not to envisage some kind of heavy-handed courtroom-type scenario presided over by men in big black hats. We're to have in mind something like this. The elders, or someone else perhaps, stand up at prayer tea or something, and they say, guys, there's a problem in our church family with our brother Martin. He's involved in a sin, and he's not repenting of it at the moment. And right now, sadly, he doesn't really see the problem. Uh, Jenny's been to see him, and so have Fred and Carolyn, and they just haven't been able to get through. So a couple of the elders are going to see him next week and we want to urge him to repent and we want to do it in your name. We want as a church family to call him back to the Lord. Please pray for us and for him and please let us know know if you have any questions or concerns, that kind of thing. Would it look exactly like that in every church? No. Every church would have to do this slightly differently depending on their size and things like that. And, And clearly there are situations in the mess of life that would require a slightly different approach where, for example, it's less clear who the sinner and who's the sinned against or whether it really is a sin or just a personality clash, all that kind of thing. Jesus is not giving us here a one-size-fits-all flowchart for dealing with every problem that could arise between members of a church family. But the point is this. The situation, in this situation, the point is not when you get to this point, give it to the elders and they'll make a ruling, but rather now the whole church is urging you, brother, to repent. It's much more organic than it is institutional. We'll come to what happens when they won't even listen to the church in a minute. 
But do you see, after, as we've gone through that process, how far it is away from that stern, unforgiving witch hunt that we might have had in our minds? This is not the big, bad institutional church clamping down on sin because they don't like it. This is actually a kind, gracious, patient pursuit of a wandering sheep done by every member of the church family at a peer-to-peer level. It brings the kindness of clarity. Rather than grumbling or gossiping or grudge-bearing, it encourages us to, to do the humble and kind thing of explaining calmly and gently and privately exactly how we think the person has sinned. It keeps communication open and transparent. And it is so, so patient. It is shockingly patient. It gives many, many second chances. This is a patient pursuit. And it's a patient pursuit with a gracious goal. Why is Jesus advocating that this is how we should treat our brother or sister who sinned against us? We might think the answer is fairly obvious. It's because fallings out and conflicts and grudges in a church community, or actually any community, are just horrible, right? It's just not nice. It's not nice to be involved in simmering resentment. It's not pleasant to know that that person over there serving coffee is not really speaking to the person they've just served coffee to. It's awkward just makes life uncomfortable. So we want to see reconciliation because we just want to rub along a bit better with people and not fall out. And that's certainly true. And that's not a bad idea and a bad goal as far as it goes. But I want to suggest that if that is our goal, a sort of pleasant atmosphere in church, then we will end up falling some way short of what Jesus is calling us to. If what we want is for us all to just get along then actually I might end up reacting very differently when you sin against me, mightn't I? I might just decide to just ignore it, forget it, overlook it, not mention it, because I don't want to rock the boat of our friendship. Now actually, uh, there is definitely a time and a place for that. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says that it is a glorious thing to overlook an offence, to have the wisdom to let some things pass and, and move on. But if that's always my approach, if that's all I ever do if I'm sinned against, if I never come and talk to you about your sin, I'm not aiming at what Jesus is aiming at here. Look at verse 15 again and see what he's aiming at. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. That's the goal. Winning your brother and sister. Gaining him or her. Remember, this is a wandering sheep. That's the image we should have in our mind. Someone who has the potential, as we all do, of walking away from the good shepherd, getting lost in dangerous places, being at the mercy of wolves. There is the potential in all of our hearts of being so hardened by our sin, being so caught up in it, treating it as so precious to us, that we stop listening to Jesus and his people because they speak against it. As we sing, as Gareth has reminded us, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We are all prone to wander. And so our gracious shepherd God has put means in place to keep me listening to him, to keep me soft-hearted, to help me to love him more than I love my sin. What are those means? Well, it's you. It's his other little ones, brothers and sisters in the same family who don't want me to wander, who don't want me to be lost, but to be one. 
And so this patient process has its, as its goal something much, more, much greater than a pleasant atmosphere. Something greater even than personal reconciliation. That would be good, but that's not even the goal. The goal is the salvation of sinners. It has as its goal the perseverance of those people who are precious to God our Father. That's why this process is so patient, in one sense so drawn out. It would be so much easier to give, on, give up on people, wouldn't it? It would be simpler just to let a person who is causing strife in the church family just to wander off and gradually lose contact with people. And I have to admit, I've been guilty of that, of not pursuing people as much as I should because I love my own comfort more than I desired for them to keep, us going, keep going to the end. May God forgive me. May God forgive all of us for that. By contrast, think about what happens when the whole church family has the attitude described here. When we seek not so much reconciliation, but restoration for the wandering sheep to come back into the fold and and start listening to Jesus again. Think about the vision that Jesus is giving us here when we have that goal in mind. First, it's a gift of grace to the sinner, isn't it? See, we might sin in ways we don't even realize. We might say something hurtful without even noticing. It's entirely possible. And when we are shown our sin, we might immediately get a bit defensive or or our hackles might be up. That that just might happen, might not it? Yet think what happens when one person, then two or three people, then the whole church family comes to me and says, brother, don't be stubborn. We're not showing you your sin because we hate you, but because we love you. If you repent of your sin, you will be immediately forgiven and restored. There is nothing to lose except your pride and everything to gain. What a gift of grace that is to me. To show me my sin, to humble my pride, to cause me once again to cast myself on the mercy of Jesus, to welcome me back into the fold. It's a gift of grace to the sinner. Second, it's a gift of grace to the sinned against. Do you see how this process is so good for the sinned against person? If I'm vaguely annoyed with you for something, I could stew on that and make it much, much bigger than it is in my mind. I could nurture bitterness and resentment. I could blow it up out of all proportion. And I could demand that you say sorry to me because I'm annoyed. And I want you to cower before my anger. And I want to be vindicated. And I want to be seen to be in the right. But if the goal is not my satisfaction or or my vindication, but your restoration, then things look very different, I think. One Old Testament verse that I think lies in the background of what Jesus is saying is Leviticus 19.17. It's on the screen. Where Moses says, don't hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in his guilt. See, if I'm clinging on to bitterness and resentment and hatred, if I don't pursue you with grace but instead stew on what you've done, then I share in your guilt. My sin against you in my heart is just as bad as your sin against me with your words or whatever it was. But if I'm encouraged to pursue you quickly with a clear statement of what you've done wrong, with the help of others in my church family, with the goal not to make me feel better but to save you from wandering away from Jesus, then that does wonders for my heart too. It might be, out of it, but just by the by, it might be that what I do is I sit down and calmly and gently and quietly try to explain to you, try to work out what I would say to you and then think to myself, oh, actually, it wasn't that much of a bigger deal. I'll just leave it. That, that could be a result of this. 
But even if I do think, no, there was something wrong here, I need to go and talk to you, it encourages me to go with you with the right attitude, not to look down on you or despise you and therefore cause myself or you to stumble. It encourages me to let go of bitterness in my heart and forgive. It encourages me to love you more than I love myself. It encourages me, in other words, to be more like Jesus, and it's so, so good for me as the sinned against person to deal with it in the way that Jesus is encouraging us to deal with it here. So it's good for the sinner. It's good for the sinned against. And thirdly, it's good for the church's witness. I said before that we live in a permissive, don't judge me and I won't judge you kind of culture. And I think that's still true. But I would also argue that our culture is growing more unforgiving and less hopeful for people. We see it, don't we, when there is some kind of public wrongdoing, some falling foul of standards, and there are immediate calls for sackings and for the people involved to be never seen in public again. Now, don't mishear me. Accountability is very good, and it is right that abuses of power and so on are called out and dealt with. But I wonder if, like me, you notice a hardening in our public discourse about wrongdoing generally. A sense, a growing sense that once someone has done something wrong, whether in the present or the past, that's it. That is the end of the story for them. They're beyond the pale. Their true nature has been revealed. The mask has slipped. And we now know that they're just a bad egg. They're a hopeless case. We can write them off. Into that culture, into our culture, what a light a church like this could shine. A community where we don't excuse or minimize sin, but we pursue sinners with clarity and grace. A community which doesn't swing between the twin errors like a pendulum of either license where we don't care about sin and we let it run rampant and we turn a blind eye to wrongdoing or law where we come down hard and fast on any wrongdoing such there's an atmosphere of fear and judgmentalism. I think you see our culture swinging between those two things but here is a community which finds a way between them. A community which welcomes back into the fold people who have hurt us, not because we're just pretending that they didn't hurt us, but because we've told the truth and we've forgiven. A community where there is more joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 who didn't need to. And a community where even the last resort is a hopeful one. We haven't touched on this yet, but what what happens in the last resort when the person who has sinned won't even listen to the church? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, pagans and tax collectors have come up before in Matthew's gospel. I wonder if you just keep a a finger in Matthew 18 and flip back to Matthew 5, um, the Sermon on the Mount, a few pages before. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 43, we're going to look at. It's page 970 in the Red Bibles. So Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling his disciples how they must live very differently to the world around them. How they must live according to the values of the kingdom of heaven rather than the values of the kingdom on earth. The values of the kingdom on earth, of this sinful world, are there in Matthew 5, exemplified by pagans and tax collectors. Who do the pagans and tax collectors love? Who are they friends with? Who do they do good to? Answer, people who can give them something back. It's a self-centered view of the world, isn't it? I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. But the values of the kingdom, says Jesus, are completely different. The sons and daughters of the kingdom don't just love those who love them back, they love their enemies. God is kind to his enemies by sending the sun and rain on them, so imitate him in his gracious goodness. Does it strike you that the very thing we've been talking about, the patient pursuit of someone who sinned against you with the goal of their restoration, is an example of this very attitude of loving an enemy? And so what does it mean to treat someone like like a pagan or a tax collector? Well, it's to say to that person, we no longer believe that you are living with the values of the kingdom of heaven. Your unrepentant attitude means you're no longer behaving like a member of God's family. Instead, you're behaving like a member of the kingdom on earth. And so we can't keep treating you as though you were a member of Jesus' people when your behavior contradicts that. We can't go on as if everything was okay. Again, what that looks like practically might be different from church to church and from situation to situation. It might be removing someone from membership. It might be withholding the Lord's Supper. In other places in the New Testament, certain sins like public sexual immorality or persistent divisive behavior, it could mean an element of social separation, a deliberate cooling off of friendship, stopping inviting people over for meals. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11. And all that might seem very hard. But again, what is the goal of that? Consistently in the New Testament, the goal of that final step is to keep warning the unrepentant sinner, to help them see the seriousness of their sin, to keep calling them to repent. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, the sexually immoral church member is to be, quote, handed over to Satan, that is expelled from church fellowship, in order that he might realize the error of his ways and that, quote, his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul says that he has broken fellowship with two false teachers. Why? Quote, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. And think about how Jesus has treated pagans and tax collectors. When Jesus sees a pagan or a tax collector walking past, does he give up on them? Does he think, ah, there goes a lost cause? No. He continued to pursue them, such that his enemies sneeringly called him the friend of sinners. Even this last step has a gracious goal and has within it the hope for change. We've been a long time in this passage already and we haven't even got to the difficult verses yet. But don't worry, I'm going to keep this brief and we continue to discuss it in growth groups or you can come and ask me any questions you have about it. Jesus calls us to a patient pursuit with a gracious goal and finally by an authentic church. Look at verse 18 with me. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, 
there am I with them. Now those final two verses in particular have often been quoted out of context. And out of context, they seem rather lovely. Two or three Christians get together and Jesus is right there with them. Ah, how nice. And they can pray for anything they like and God the Father will give it to them. Sounds great. But out of context, those verses can sound a bit questionable as well. Is this really saying that if I grab two people at coffee time and get them to pray with me that God will give me a Ferrari, then Jesus will be right there with us and God will have to accede to my request? I mean, you can, you can try it if you like. But I think when we put that, uh, these verses back into their context, things make a lot more sense. I think it's helpful to, to work backwards. Let's start at verse 20, and it says that where two or three are gathered, uh, come together in my name, there am I with them. Well, where in this passage are two or three gathered in Jesus' name? Well, in verse 16, where two or three people go together to the unrepentant sinner and call them to repent. You see, of course, Jesus is always present with his people, but the particular situation Jesus has in mind is still this patient pursuit of the sinner. In that situation, as you and I put that process into action, as we go searching for the wandering sheep, we can be sure that Jesus goes with us. That as we speak God's word into someone's life, so the power of Jesus by his spirit will be at work. Two weeks ago, we thought about the kind of damage that Christians can potentially do to one another. That we can cause other little ones to stumble that we can tragically lead people into sin. And that might make us fearful of ever talking to anybody about anything because we might say the wrong thing. But here we see that a Christian can do tremendous good in another believer's life as well, that he or she might be the agent of Jesus' presence in another person's life, the cause not of someone's stumbling, but of their restoration. And so that helps us think about that promise in verse 19, that if those two or three people agree about what they ask, then it will be done for them. Again, what is being asked for in this situation? What does the church pray for when a wandering sheep wanders? Well, the two or three who, are, are, who agree are agreeing together that another member has sinned. And what are they going to ask for? They're going to ask God to help that person see their sin. They will pray that the person will repent and be reconciled. They'll pray that they'll go graciously and humbly to show their brother their fault. They will pray against bitterness and resentment in their own hearts. They will pray if he repents for forgiveness from the whole church family. They will pray if he doesn't that the subsequent stages of the process will work to change his mind. They will pray that whatever happens, the church will be a community where Jesus is honoured. They will, in fact, pray something like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now there is a prayer that the Lord loves to answer. And so working backwards again, how does that help us understand verse 18? Well, we looked at uh, this in some detail when Jesus said something very similar in chapter 16, verse 19. So if you, if you want a bit more of a deep dive into that language, look that sermon up on our website. You see the Old Testament context for the binding and the loosing and the keys and all that kind of thing in chapter 16. Or come and ask me if you want to know more. But this language of binding and loosing, as we saw back then, 
is to do with the church having the ability, led by the, apost- the apostles, the apostolic gospel, of making authoritative statements about what is true teaching and what is false, about what kind of behavior is appropriate for God's people and what kind of behavior is inappropriate. Now, that is not at all to say that whatever a local church does or says is exactly what God would have them do. No, churches do and will get it wrong, and we as a church have got it wrong and will get it wrong. But it is to say that when an authentic Christian church, a church which is listening to the apostolic word and seeking to live it out, when people in that church pursue each other with patient, gracious hope, Jesus is working in and through them here on earth to do something which has heavenly, eternal significance. When you come to me and say, you have sinned against me, and I say, you're right, I have, and I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you, you are declaring not only that you forgive me on earth, but that Jesus has forgiven me in heaven. When we say to someone, this sin is not appropriate for someone who bears the name of Jesus, you must repent or else we will have to remove you from fellowship. If we do that rightly, we're not just organizing the membership of an earthly club. We are revealing a reality about the kingdom of heaven about what it means to be part of it and what it means to be outside it, which is a helpful and powerful witness to those around us about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And when we stand up at prayer tea and say, guys, the meeting with Martin went really, really well. He's repented and he's thankful and he's reconciled to Jenny. Isn't that great? Then our joy is an authentic reflection and overflow of the Father's heart as he rejoices in heaven that his kingdom is coming on earth. We started with a rather ugly picture, didn't we? That of a cold, stern, authoritarian community of unforgiving busybodies. But do you see how this passage actually gives us a rich and beautiful vision of something we don't see anywhere else in our world? A compassionate community who pursue each other with with patience and hope who offer grace instead of bearing grudges, who are kind and clear with one another, who love each other humbly from the heart, who are passionately concerned with the honour of Jesus and with the salvation of the wandering and of the lost. A little outcrop of heaven on earth, a little glimpse of the heavenly realities in an earthly community. Now, I think this is a, a real challenge for us as a church, isn't it? Perhaps there are, you know that there are people in this Church family, for for whom you are bearing a grudge, and you need to go and sort this out. And we're going to make mistakes in this area, and we have made mistakes in this area, and we're going to make many more. There's always room for growth. But I am so thankful that I am part of an authentic Christian church where people have done this for me, where people have come and said to me, "That, that wasn't right, and I've said sorry, and they said, I forgive you. I'm so thankful for that. And it would be good to pray, wouldn't it, that we continue to pursue each other with grace and kindness and clarity from a desire not to prove ourselves right, but for restoration and for the salvation of the person we go and talk to. And if you're not yet a believer here today, I'm really, really glad you're here. I hope you can see that this passage reveals God's heart for you. He does not want you to keep wandering far from him to keep rejecting him and hurting yourself and hurting others because of your sin. 
But neither does he want to just come down on you like a ton of bricks and judge you and punish you. He wants you to be a part of his family, a community where sin is taken seriously for the purpose of showing grace. And he offers you today the forgiveness that only Jesus can bring through his death in your place. Now, if that's you and you want to talk about that further, please come and talk to me or Gareth or anyone else. There was some person who brought you at the end. But for now, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that what we read here about the patient pursuit with a gracious goal is how you've pursued us. We are those who have sinned repeatedly and often against you, and yet you have pursued us with grace to show us our sin by your Spirit and to declare us forgiven when we repent by the blood of Jesus. Father, we pray that we would be more and more a community of people who offer that same gracious, kind, patient pursuit to each other. Where people sin against us, please, would we do the the hard and humble and beautiful thing of calmly and gently reflecting, of going to them and speaking uh, kindly about what has gone what has gone wrong, all with the goal of restoration and forgiveness. And when people do this for us, Father, when people come to us uh, and show us our sin, may we have the humility to acknowledge the truth of it, to say sorry, and to uh, come back into the fold. Thank you that no matter how much we walk away from you, there is always grace. And you have a great uh, storehouse of mercy. We pray that we would come back to that storehouse time and time again uh, to find grace and mercy in our time of need. Thank you for Jesus, the good shepherd of the sheep. And may we always walk in close fellowship with him and with his people. In Jesus' name, amen.